This episode of Seize the Yay is brought to you by Hero Packaging. Sometimes finding out what you don't want to do and what you don't like is just as good as discovering what you do like. Probably the biggest mistake we make is trying to live someone else's life or live someone else's path. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And that choice is our greatest freedom. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy, and fulfillment along the way. Hello, wonderful humans. Thank you so, so much for the outpouring of love for last week's 100th episode. It was truly a pinch me moment that reminded me just how grateful I am for this wonderful neighborhood. I've been a little bit flat since the start of another six weeks of ISO in Victoria, but you all brought so much joy to the week and continue to do so in giving me a reason to create CZA for you each week. I can't believe we've come this far and I'm so excited for hundreds more to come. Today's guest is actually one I've been meaning to get on since the very beginning of the podcast, having been a huge role model and support for me in business and in life. Every time Erica and I run into each other, speedy catch-ups seem to reveal that one or both of us is on the cusp of a revelation or new chapter, leading always to such interesting chats about ideas of success, personal development and joy. While you might have encountered Eri in her role as one of the co-founders of global e-commerce sensation, Frank Body, her story extends far beyond that in both directions, all of which she openly explores with us today. Most recently, Eri is making waves with her fresh and fabulous fluff casual cosmetics, taking a bold new approach to beauty with refillable and conversation-starting packaging that's up there with my favourite handbag essentials of all time time. As one of the cleverest people with words that I know, Eri tells it far better than I do. So let's jump right in. I hope you all enjoy. Eri, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. (laughs) It is so nice to see your beautiful face. It's been so long. Before we get into anything else, how are you? How are you coping with ISO? Are you loving it? Are you hating it? So I've taken to asking my friends, how are you today? Because I think my mood and I think everyone's mood changes even more than just each day. It's kind of every hour for me. I'm like, I'm really good. And then I'm really bad. Um, <laughs> right now I feel pretty good. I've been going through these in and out kind of slumps of feeling quite bored and uninspired or uncreative especially over this sort of isolated period so I've been just trying to get that creative spark back yeah I think creativity and motivation is something a lot of people are struggling with with you know such a drastic change of routine lately but I love the way you describe things just before we actually started recording when I asked how you are you said up and down but net good and that's so how I think about things and evaluate where I'm at at the moment things are generally net good overall but there are tougher moments, there are easier moments, and there are those moments where it's hard to find motivation and routine again. It doesn't just arrive, even for otherwise generally motivated people like you and I. You know, when you're out of routines and and the things, you know, that help you stay driven when you can't do them, it can get really tough. Totally. It's a constant challenge. And I never like feeling too sorry for myself or I like the term not throwing a pity party. (laughs) But I know that I can't be overly positive all the time. Like I can't keep that sort of rainbow vision going. So I really need to be able to talk about the realities but not dwell on them for too long. Absolutely. And that's something I grapple with too, that I'm sort of 90 to 95% engrossed in the rainbow yay vision, (laughs) but no one can maintain that all the time. It's not a pity party just to acknowledge the non-rainbow end of the emotional spectrum. 
And that's something I've really admired about you for a long time is that you have a strong ability to motivate and spark change and action, but not without openly covering the tougher sort of shitter bits in a way that isn't overwhelming, but just it's it's a realist positivity, which already makes the icebreaker a bit redundant. But as you know, we always start every episode with the most down to earth thing about each guest and looking at your incredible achievements across industries and from such a young age, like straight out of uni, the surface could seem very glossy and dreamy, but what's something to break through that that's really relatable and normal about you? I feel like you've sort of answered that question for me in that I would like to think that what's down to earth about me is that despite having done several things over the last 10, 12 years, I'm quite honest and open with people about how that's affected me and the journey along the way. And with all those ups, there's been plenty of downs. And I don't really put that much emphasis on upholding this image or this positive sort of version of myself anymore. I'm pretty candid. So I like that about me. And that's what I look for in other people, how I would describe down-to-earth people Mm. that may be on a really like simple sort of human level maybe the fact that I still sleep with a teddy bear (laughs) both are equally amazing to me I love both of those (laughs) keeping your inner child alive and let's actually start there with young Eri in childhood and go through the pathway to get to where you are now and You know that I love exploring how the best ways TA are non-linear and often not planned. I read that you didn't ever think you'd be a business owner, which I found so surprising because that's exactly what I would have always thought you'd be. So what did you think you wanted to be instead? What were you like as a young twin? You know, take us back. So I think I'm similar to the conversation you had with Flex recently where I don't have that much of sort of like a conscious awareness of my childhood up until maybe 15, 16, or any real like, this is what I wanted to do. These are really vivid memories of me going out and, you know, making a lemonade stand. (laughs) Not really anything like that. I remember when we had to do work experience at school and I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. I think I was really attached to the idea of it, just going to work in the city and wearing a suit And maybe I I liked debating at school. So I'm like, yeah, I want to do this and get paid lots of money for doing it. (laughs) It's work experience at a law firm and was like, yep, I don't want to do this. And I always say to people, like sometimes finding out what you don't want to do and what you don't like is just as good as discovering what you do like or doing something that you really enjoy. So after I realized that law was not for me, I kind of had a very small identity crisis about what I wanted to do. And I remember speaking to my careers counsellor and he simply asked me, what do I enjoy doing and what do I care about? And I think I had a small interest in writing at the time and was reading a lot and particularly around personal profiles and stories. Like, do you remember or no? It's still going. The articles, I believe, in The Good Weekend, The Two of Us, where it's profile pieces. And I loved those. And then I loved Sarah Wilson and I loved Mia Friedman. And I remember reading some of their articles and thinking or feeling like they were inside of my head and articulating feelings or thoughts that I had. And that was probably the moment where I thought, wow, imagine if I could do this for other people, write something that connects to them and speaks to what they're already thinking or feeling. And so sort of naively thought, cool, well, could this be a career? Writing sounds glamorous and working in all the magazines and writing feature articles could be great. And I remember my careers counsellor said, okay, well, you probably have to move to Sydney because that's where all the magazines are. And I hated that idea because I was just living in my little Bayside bubble and couldn't bear the thought of leaving my friends. (laughs) I quickly realised that that was probably something that I had to do. And that's what led me to study journalism in the hopes of pursuing some kind of career in writing. That's so interesting. I love hearing, firstly, that writing has ended up being a very big part of your career, but that you weren't sort of from the time you were five putting, you know, journal articles and scrapbooking all the writing things. Mm. Like it wasn't, I always have wanted to be a journo and this is what I want to do. God, no. I mean, I have always journaled and I still have some of my diaries from when I was maybe eight to 12 or 15 which is so interesting to read over I do that every now and then as a really interesting exercise (laughs) I highly recommend it if anyone still has their diaries just to sort of reconnect with your 
inner child and what you were thinking at one point in time. So I think writing was always part of me. And I always say to people, like, if you could make a living from what you love and what you enjoy doing the most, why wouldn't you? Mm. And it really, I guess, presents this sort of challenge around turning your passion or hobby into a job and whether that very quickly makes you lose the passion from that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a question I talk about a lot is that, you know, with this whole millennial perception that you have to love your job and be passionate all the time and these just the messy concepts of passion with skill, with job, with vocation, it's really hard to sort of untangle all that. And for some people, really, they turn their passion into their profession and they don't love it as much anymore because they're creating to someone else's brief. So I think it is really important early to remind people that some people find a union between what they love and what they get paid for. Some people don't and they choose to not have it that way. But the coolest thing that I love about you is that your very first job, so not even sort of the five companies in that you are now, but the very first job you had didn't exist when you first started studying and was so new at the time that when I first met you and you'd just left cassette and had started Willow and were talking to me about copywriting and my legal brain was like, oh, cool, you're like copywriting stuff for people and trademarking. Had no idea what that word even meant. It was so new. So how did you forge a path so early having done journalism, which now is sort of the media is changing very quickly, but back when you studied was still very conventional. Print magazines were still really big. How did you even discover that there were jobs in between the buckets that we tend to think there exist at uni? This is where I think the conversation around luck and hard work kind of comes into play. And I used to really defend, you know, the idea when people would be like, oh, you're really lucky. And I'd be like, no, I'm not just lucky. I worked really fucking hard. And then I'm like, no, I actually really have to acknowledge the amount of luck that has come into my life and played a really fortunate role. And yes, I have potentially seized those lucky opportunities where other people might not have, but there are lots of sort of serendipitous introductions, meetings, run-ins that have allowed me to get to where I am. And I think that I would be quite full of myself to not acknowledge that. (laughs) So for me, like the first sort of fork in the road or serendipitous sort of meeting I had was while I was still at university and Jess, who I started Will and Blake with alongside Brie, we were living together at the time and she had found at Cassette, this design agency, they were running a competition on Facebook to basically win a website being made. And you just had to write in 25 words or less why you wanted to win. You know, so I could say that it was sort of lucky that Jess found that and then showed it to me and then I happened to write the piece and then Charlie the managing director contacted me and said that he loved what I had written and that they were looking for someone to run their social media and copywriting. And I was 21 at the time. And again, I remember Googling what is social media because it wasn't a term then. Like we had Facebook and we used the internet, but it wasn't yet this like category. And I was like, oh, okay. I write about eggs on my blog. Um, (laughs) Sure. So, and I just, again, have sort of always had this naive optimism where I was like, cool, someone's offering me something. I'm going to go in there and just see what have I got to lose. And I think that's what has provided me with a lot of opportunities in my career. And even now, some might say that I'm missing that bolt or that sort of fear, or I don't see the risk in putting myself out there. And maybe it's just lucky that that's how I'm wired. It's funny though. I do think there is always a really important role of timing and being in the right networks and in the right positioning to get certain opportunities. And luck does play a really big role in that. And timing, I mean, the timing when you launched Frank Body, that played a huge role in the success. But I also think luck has to find you working. It won't stumble upon somebody who hasn't done the work to have an open enough mind to even like see that there's an opportunity at all. So I would never discount that it found you also having done all the work and having that naive optimism. I love that you call it that because I think that's an incredibly important element that I didn't have when I first went into the workforce. I was so the opposite of open-minded, so the opposite of naive. I had to explore every single risk that was possible and that really stopped me doing anything interesting for a very long time. Yeah, I think that I used to be quite not shy or afraid of that term sort of naive optimism, but I probably didn't talk about it as much as I 
do now. And again, it's sort of finding this balance between being positive about the state of the world and like seeking or pursuing opportunities, but then also being conscious of the realities that are in front of you and where you need to go to get somewhere. Mm. So for me, even with copywriting to sort of see that my style, whether I was aware of it or not, lent itself to writing copy on the internet and to be like, cool, I'm going to go with this and see where it takes me. And yeah, and sort of let go a little bit around my expectations of about what being a writer was or could be. It's also interesting that coming back to the idea that you guys really started Willow before copywriting had really taken off as a need because people didn't have social media platforms as much as they do now, that you guys were incredibly young. You were straight out of uni. It was well before entrepreneurship was cool. Startups were barely a thing. I mean, I don't even know if that was a word. And naive optimism is a word you can use comfortably now, but at the time you were probably feeling like, we don't want anyone to underestimate us. Like I think being young women often leads to a lot of underestimation. How did you deal with being so new in an industry that was so new and being so young and trying to go against the grain at a time where it's trendy now to go against the grain, but then you guys were really the first yeah, or among the very first? I think we just wanted people to take us seriously, probably first and foremost as writers. I mean, I still want people to take me seriously and some people do, some people don't, and it's probably more of a reflection on how I feel rather than them. <laughs> I don't think I ever would have been conscious of going against the grain probably until I started Fluff. At Willow, at Frank, it was just us pursuing something that we really loved and cared about and were like, surely this could work. Now with Fluff, there's a lot more sort of noise and competition that it feels like we really are pushing against things and kind of coming up against differing or like more wildly held opinions. So that's been more difficult, but I kind of think, well, there's always this like gut feeling that tells me that this is just something that we have to do. Mm. The other thing that I, I mean, one of the quotes I mention in pretty much every single episode these days is that you don't have to see the whole staircase to take the first step and taking that very first step into Willow and Blake We're always at risk when we do something uncomfortable of patting ourselves on the back for too long without realizing that your comfort zone eventually catches up with you. But I think you've been amazing at seeking out new challenges for each iteration of Erica as you've gone along. Mm. How do you decide or what were the agitations within you or thought processes when you were like, I've done my one thing, now I'm going to open a cafe. Let's do LBSS. Let's do hospitality. And then a year later, let's do Frank. Again, haven't ever done a skincare business before. Social media is brand new. Haven't had five founders before. And then again, knowing when you'd hit your that area where you had outgrown it or it had outgrown you when you were ready for the next challenge. How do people sort of decide when it's time to expand into something new or shift the opportunity or shift whatever they're applying themselves to? Because I think people find that really difficult. Well, I think it's so personal and probably the biggest mistake we make is trying to live someone else's life or live someone else's path, right? And, you know, this is what I believe your podcast is all about is finding your own version of that, your own day. But we so focus on living other people's. Mm. For me, again, there was a mix of sometimes feeling like I was done with one thing and needed to move on. And then sometimes I just felt like I could do more than one thing at a time. And I just wanted to try things. And what I was learning in one business, I could apply to another. So probably now I think I have less energy than I might have when I was younger to do multiple things, which I think is really interesting. I mean, I'm sure there's 30-year-olds, 4-year-olds, 80-year-olds who have more energy than I do, but I think I am conscious of now I have less energy than I did in the Willow and Frank and LBSS days. It's Or it's more that I've decided that I want to put my energy into one thing. Yeah. And so when you did have all of those, was that because you weren't sure what fulfilled you or were different parts of each fulfilling different parts of you? I always find it really interesting when particularly something like Frank Body takes off as big as it did, 
And just quickly for anyone who hasn't heard the incredible story of how Frank Body was built and grown, there are many other podcasts, including an episode of our own actually, that cover it in detail. So if you do want to listen, make sure you go and hit up one of those because it's an incredible story. But I always try here to provide as much new content, you know, as I can. So taking it more from a bird's eye view perspective with a little bit more hindsight, was there a point where, you know, I think there's a bit of an existential crisis around achieving success so early and then you sort of lose track of will I ever do this well again and will I ever be challenged again in this way? You know, when was the point where you hit, yes, this startup side hustle thing is actually successful and I'm doing what I love as a job and then when did you reach the next point which was, you know, actually my comfort zone that I stepped out of has now caught up with me and maybe I'm ready for the the next chapter. What I'm learning is where I used to think that there was sort of just one version of me that was airy that worked and then was a daughter and a friend and a girlfriend and a sister or whatever, that there is multiple versions of me that get pulled in different directions. And I'm really learning to accept that and embrace that because what I sort of realizing and now that I can look back on with Frank is that I was growing both as like a business person and then just as a woman I guess I was learning so much about myself so it would be crazy for those two sort of paths to be growing at exactly the same rate Mm. and so what I was learning in business was affecting how I felt as just a human and I was learning about what I valued so it just it changed you know what I wanted in year one of Frank was very different to what I wanted in year three and that was where I think I had this internal sort of conflict because I had ticked a lot of boxes in many ways I felt really accomplished and it was successful in a lot of people's eyes but I had grown up and I had changed and I wanted new things and I couldn't really ignore that. I think I was really lucky to have had Charlie as my first boss at Cassette because he taught me a lot about myself and around awareness and around ego and just acknowledging that we're going to grow and change and there's no point sort of fighting that. Yeah, totally. And I think something Flex said in her episode as well was that at one point she looked at her wardrobe and she realized nothing in it reflected how she felt about herself, even though at one point in her life it had reflected exactly who she thought she was. And I think our careers and our life generally that happens where you take a step back and something that suited you so well and that was everything you wanted at one point in your life, you grow and suddenly it's not that anymore. But it it takes a long time to get there and, and I'm sure in the moment it was exactly what you wanted to do. Do you look back and have any real moments where you had huge revelations about what success was, what you wanted? Do you have like your most surreal moments in the frank time of like I have made it and this is just crazy? And then when you did hit that time where you were like I – have become known as a founder of Frank Body. I'm walking away from a multi-million dollar business and learning not to get blinded by the shiny things. What was then then <laughs> that big move like? So many. I mean, Frank Body happened so quickly and I really feel like I got caught up in that and didn't have enough time to appreciate the wins or to really stop and be like, where are we going and where do I want to go? Which is one of the reasons why I decided to leave. And I remember when we would have wins I was so focused on what we were doing next that it was really hard for me to celebrate like I vividly remember once Buffer like making me stop and come and have a glass of champagne to actually cheers to something we had achieved but I was just not mentally there for whatever reason I think the opportunities that Frank gave me in traveling and meeting people and meeting some of these incredible founders and heritage companies and understanding how big beauty or business could be was really incredible and I'm so grateful for that because it's allowed me to sort of approach fluff with this sort of much bigger vision and dream as opposed to just sort of this little side thing that I'm doing. Mm. So that was incredible but I I really vividly remember the morning that I woke up and didn't want to go to work and that was really confronting for me because it was my own job and the job I had created, (laughs) you know. The boss that I didn't like was myself, um, which was really hard. And just I probably sat on these feelings for over a year of why I didn't feel fulfilled or happy or why, again, when my wardrobe said this about me internally, I was saying a whole different thing. 
and I guess my ideas around success were really starting to change where it might have all been external before around money in my bank account, what my apartment looked like, what clothes I had, how much I travelled, the people I was meeting and the places I was going it really changed to this idea of like, do I feel like I'm creating something bigger than myself? Mm. Am I having any kind of impact? And what do I feel responsible for? Or what kind of influence do I think that I'm having? I think that with social, it's really easy for us to not think about that or forget about that or just see these numbers and not assign them to human beings that are listening and taking on our every word every day. Yeah. Absolutely. And I also think it's funny that you did say that it's something you sort of started as a hobby on the side. And when you don't have any concept of how big something is going to grow, it very quickly does kind of outgrow you and the role you hoped for yourself and the person you wanted to be in that business disappears. And I even found that on a much smaller scale with Matcha Maiden that as it got bigger, my role became further and further away from anything I ever wanted to do and anything that actually aligned with my skills or my interests. I was like, I'm going to hire this vest in a food factory. Like, what am I doing here? <laughs> and there's a beauty in that sort of not having a plan and just going with it and seeing where it takes you. But I guess we just have to be prepared for the outcome that it can take you to a place you don't want to be. So Mm. While fluff, we've had to pivot and change a lot and, you know, we're not stuck to some huge rigid plan. There is a plan and there is a goal and there is a vision and I know what right now I want it to look like in 5, 10, 20 years and that works as a really nice sort of guiding star for me in terms of coming back to and having people keep me accountable. And it's it's actually so interesting hearing all this because I knew you through all those different phases and knowing and now sort of exploring what was actually going on inside your mind as you went through these phases. I think one of the most liberating things that anyone can do is walk away from something that no longer suits them, even if objectively there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, It's hard. I mean, if there is something wrong with it, you've got more motivation to leave because it's, I always say people won't make a change unless they're actively unhappy. But if they're just like, eh. They, they'll sit in that because we, we like comfort and we like habit. But to actually break down who is Erica and take away all the things that had defined you for that long and then have to rebuild something is extraordinarily liberating but also incredibly scary. And I have existential crises every day, but I can't imagine in that initial phase where you decided after a year of discomfort to walk away from Frank but not know what you were going towards. Yeah. What was that like and how did Fluff sort of come from the ashes like I imagine that the four months that you took to just travel and un, you know decompress and find yourself again would have been it sounds really fun but I'm sure it was actually quite tormenting and confusing <laughs> and disorientating to be like who am I now I reckon to be honest it was just four months of fun and then in the three years since launching fluff I've been like fuck who am I um, <laughs> so I sort of took a lot more time off I you know it's it's interesting and I think about what I thought I knew when I left Frank and what I think I know now. And I think the biggest problem is that we feel pressure to to realise or know what we're going to be and what we're going to do by any age and that it's one path. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Like if I can be 60 and still at Fluff, amazing. But if my Fluff journey ends in two years, then that's what that journey is. Yeah. And maybe I want to do something else in five years' time. Like I still have a lot of dreams and aspirations outside of fluff but if my energy is still drawn to this project for however long it is that's where I will put it but yeah there was definitely I think a catalyst for me leaving Frank when we were looking for investors and had to sign on for five years so that helped me choose to leave and you know I wonder if I would have if we didn't have that pressure but this idea around fluff had sort of always been in the background I was obviously thrown into the beauty world through writing it wasn't something that was necessarily something that I was obsessed with or that interested in but I was always been interested in writing and connecting to people through brands and through products and the more time I spent in America the more time I saw I guess the influence of cosmetics as opposed to skincare and how much consumers and younger consumers are engaging with it and I just didn't think that we had something in Australia that I could connect with or that younger girls could connect with. So it really was initially a market opportunity and something that I felt like I could do better branding-wise. And since then, in the three years since we've launched, it's turned into something that's so much more 
purpose driven and mission driven and we've sort of gone down the forever winding road that is trying to be a more responsible brand across all aspects and the beauty industry is moving so fast and trying to keep up with that and Mm. just the the sheer like competition and noise that is out there is what's been really difficult and interesting to to navigate yeah it's interesting I read you saying that it's not about more makeup it's about better makeup and it's counterintuitive to start a brand in a highly saturated industry only to tell them that they need to wear less makeup but maybe that's exactly kind of what we need is someone who is going to cut through all the stuff that's like based on a premise of something about you isn't good enough let's cover it up but it takes a long time to find the confidence to have a voice like that and particularly when you've come from a business with five founders to going out completely on your own I can imagine that was now you know fluff's three years old but in that initial stage where you had the idea but you were like how am I going to execute and Mm -hmm. what is it going to look like how did you actually get started with I'm going to actually do something on my own. It's going to be its own brand. It's going to be different to any other brand that exists. Even the colors and the fonts and and the aesthetic itself is so different and groundbreaking. How did you go about starting? How did you choose how many SKUs you were going to do? Like how did you also just combat the doubt and the, the fear of like how is this going to go and what is it going to end up like not having any certainty about it? So that naive optimism was still very much there. And <laughs> after leaving Frank, I had a certain air of confidence in my ability, maybe too much. And I also had money behind me. So I felt like this is a winning combination. I can do it. And very quickly got served the reality of how hard it can be. But where to start was sort of like I'd spent a long time in the industry and I'm always kind of thinking that I'm like a sponge and wanting to take on what's around me and understand what consumers are doing. So I was literally just looking at what was happening around me and what consumers were thinking about and buying and what they were looking at. And that's where I felt like there was this gap for fluff. You know, when I think about three years ago where beauty was in Australia, I don't feel like we even now have that many brands that we hold on to or put on a pedestal and be like, these are amazing Australian beauty brands. Or it's like there's less than five probably that you can name. Mm. And I wanted to be something that provided an alternative. And personally, I was a bit disheartened and disinterested by the overwhelming sea of millennial pink. And I guess the kind of the same voices and opinions that were circulating in the beauty industry and just this idea of the whole Instagram face and how much makeup people were being told to wear and this sort of underlying message that you're more with the amount of makeup you wear, you're more with the amount of clothes that you buy. I sort of wanted to take this anti-consumerism approach, obviously still by making stuff, but just giving people the choice to sort of buy less, buy better and for us to learn along the way too because, yeah, like I mentioned before, the things that I cared about when I started Fluff are very different to the things that I care about now and I don't really think that I could have really predicted how much I would care. Like it's just been a process that has evolved. That's so interesting that even in something that was completely your own and that was completely born out of much greater and purposeful alignment with the new direction that you were taking that you still have ended up three years later like never thought I'd be here but this is where I am and these are the things I've learned. A quick word from today's partner in Yay, the legendary team at Hero Packaging. Especially in business, I'm sure you've noticed I love to share things that genuinely help us do things better and finding the right packaging can be a make or break situation. There are so many exciting things coming your way in the next few months and I really wanted to make sure they arrive safely, beautifully and without the harmful impact that plastic can have on the planet. Hero Packaging have answered every single one of those needs with their incredibly effective, attractive and fully compostable mailers. The team is Aussie-based and certified and their mailers are not only commercially compostable, but certified by Bioplastics Australia and are safe for worms. They break down in under two years, even in landfill, and are safe for home compost as well. Plus, the team are helping me design some custom Seize the Yay mailers with quotes of the day on them too for an extra dose of yay. I can't recommend them more highly for any fellow business owners out there. Just use the code Seize the Yay, no spaces, to get 10% off your first order. It'll change your business. 
What have been your your biggest learnings and revelations in that journey? I would say your sort of comments around going against the grain or having an opinion where you previously wouldn't have or trying to feel like you're asking for the microphone on a full stage has been really difficult, but it is about persisting and knowing that you'll sort of slowly but surely find your people who understand the message, but also being open to changing or altering your message to make it more easily digestible. So that's been really interesting for us. A big lesson for me has been in around our impact in terms of the products that we are creating. Cosmetics is really different to skincare and then the the way that the beauty industry is going in terms of packaging and trying to be better. I don't like the word sustainable because I think that it's just it's a lie because we're all producing shit. Um, (laughs) The sustainable thing we can do is stop. But I feel like if we can lessen our impact and educate people on their individual influence um, and just try and make better choices, then then we will leave having ticked off a box. Mm. And how has your, like one of the things I get really preoccupied with in the whole yay journey and particularly when people have had lots of different iterations of what they thought they wanted. How is your metrics for how you measure yourself or and the business, but yeah, both personally and professionally, how have they changed in terms of what did you think was successful when you first came into conceive of fluff? And then over the three years, how do you now define what is successful or meaningful or purposeful for you? Have you hit a point where you're like, yes, <laughs> this is it? Or I just wonder how your metrics have changed. I feel like as soon as I hit a point, I'm like, cool, where are we going next? But yeah, I have a letter that I wrote to my friend like maybe five years ago where I was like, I think I want to make the Australian version of Glossier. You know, now in press we get compared to Glossier or we get called their little rebellious sister, which makes me laugh and I take that as a huge compliment. But, you know, at first I just sort of wanted to have that brand influence or impact. And then once we created the brand, I was like, oh, I think that, shit, we're actually producing stuff and, you know, taking away from the earth as opposed to giving back. And it just makes sense to try and do a better job of that. So I was like, oh, there's enough makeup in the world. Why would I just be adding to that noise? Why don't I try and make better makeup? And so what does better makeup mean? And for us, it was like, cool, you know, natural formulations in skincare are huge in Australia, but it's not actually really that common in cosmetics. And then this whole idea around vegan makeup and being cruelty-free. It's like some brands, it's a standard, but then there's all these blurry lines around particular ingredients, whether that's beeswax or lanolin and carmine. So what do we want our stance to be on that? And then if we know that consumers are starting to care more about single-use plastic and the packaging that they're using and how much is being used, like why wouldn't we just choose the better option? So us making this decision to move towards all of our products being refillable, like that has probably been one of the biggest things I'm proud of, but I wouldn't have said that was in my company pipeline or vision. It's just it's just evolved where we've had consumers telling us what they expect and we've just been like, you know what, okay, we're going to do this and it makes sense and we have to make that change. So there are things that I think I'm really proud of and I had this older businessman in New Zealand once tell me his definition of success, which I have stolen now. Thank you, Chris. But his (laughs) idea was that um, success is when your head, your heart and your wallet and your soul are aligned. So five years ago, I would have said success is when your wallet's fat. And now I think it's finding that balance, but it's very hard because usually if your heart is engaged in something, you might not be making that much money or you might not be intellectually stimulated. But fluff is ticking all these boxes, not always at once, but there have been moments where I felt driven like mentally, emotionally in terms of purpose and I can see the financial gains. And that's when I probably feel most connected to what I'm doing. And I feel like fluff is something that I would like to be and can be remembered for. That's a big thing for me. And maybe it's just as I get older, I'm like, yeah, what do I want people to talk about? And what do I want to leave behind? And is fluff something that people will remember and talk about? Or is it something that's just going to be really easily forgotten? I love that legacy piece. I think it is something that does come with age and maturity that 
you know, when you're in your early 20s, your legacy is whatever. It's so many decades away that you just don't even care about the mark that you're going to leave on people. But as you grow and develop, I think your definition of success, or maybe not even to use that word, but maybe fulfillment becomes so much more multidimensional. Money is but one of sort of five to 10 different factors that contribute to a really overall fulfilling life, which is why I love that definition. And I totally appreciate why you stole it. I think it's wonderful. Be a group steal. Yeah. (laughs) Do you feel like over the past few years, I imagine something that would be frustrating and will probably, I think, start to happen to me as well as I move more into CZA from Matcha Maiden that people assign, we're very label focused and we're so like, this is how I perceive you in these boxes. Do you find that you are becoming more known for fluff than you were for Frank? Do people still try and really ascribe you that identity when you're like, I've been doing something else for three years and for anyone else who wants to really draw a line in their identity and signal a shift to something else? Do you have any advice for how to redefine and re-communicate that you have a new focus, a new identity and new priorities? Yeah, it's been a struggle for me. And I think the first two and a half years of fluff, I was still doing interviews about Frank. And that was really frustrating. But I also had to reconcile at one point that that was a big part of my journey and had gotten me to where I was. But I realized that I could control that conversation and just say to people, hey, I really want to focus on what I'm doing now. This is what I really care about. Mm. The sort of (laughs) unpaid work in being a founder and representing yourself is really interesting and difficult. And I'm sure that we could talk about this for a long time. And I'd be interested in your take on it too, in terms of I... I'm not sort of inherently a person that likes to put myself out there and, um, again, not being as connected to beauty or what people would maybe categorise as a beauty founder. And that's sort of been hard because I felt like in some ways I have to be a certain way or say certain things and will I be taken seriously or will this be enough for the beauty industry? And I've sort of... The biggest conversation has actually been with myself, just being comfortable with putting out there what I really believe in, but it's something that's that's hard. And especially when you see what people like and sometimes that can be different from what you like. So it's sort of this idea of like, oh, am I selling this brand, Erica, or am I selling what I really care about and what connects with consumers more and I think what I've really wanted, and, you know, this goes back to your question around sort of what's down to earth about you, is that I hope that when people see my social feed and then if they meet me in real life or they engage with fluff, that there is this sort of connection and it all comes full circle because some people have their different personas and I get it, but I really struggle with that. I want it to feel connected, Mm. but it's hard because I don't know sometimes how to post a picture of my face on social or I feel like that's besides the point of what I want to talk about. But it's like, is this just the way it is? I mean, how do you feel? Yeah, I think I I haven't actually really asked anyone this question before, but it's I think because I identify with you a lot in the same way on this particular point where, you know, part of business has become a little bit personal branding as well as product. It is a a dimension to your marketing and your brand identity that might not have ever existed before. You know, founders could really exist in anonymity and it adds another aspect of power in terms of connection, but also sometimes you don't want to talk about yourself and you do want the products to speak for themselves, but you do want to make it clear what you align with. And I was interested to ask you because it's one of the questions I get the most is people who are starting new businesses, but they're sort of like, do I have to market myself as well? Or, and how do I communicate what I'm feeling and where are my values and the business's values different? And it's hard. I think it's an ongoing area to navigate that kind of the market's expectations, our expectations of ourselves, they change day to day, depending on how outwardly focused you feel. And some days I'm like, ugh. I just want to let all the business stuff do its own work. And then sometimes I'm like, no, I want to connect and explain. And <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just really up and down. I don't think my answer is the same every day. But I do think I came from a career where I was very, very anonymous. My work spoke for itself. Nothing was about the personal dialogue or story or narrative to having to force myself to accept that at least part of it is going to be about the personal narrative. And I had to kind of get over how awkward it felt 
to put myself in the picture sometimes at least. And over time, as you realize that that helps your overall purpose and your values, if you can use it the right way to help your values, then it becomes like, okay, it's worth it. Yeah. I think that's what I'm still learning is how to channel those thoughts and like feelings and frustrations into an outcome that works for both me and the audience. Um, I think where I have struggled is that Fluff's message is really around being yourself and not trying to be anyone else. So it's Mm. difficult for me when I would put out, you know, my life and my preferences and my things and then realize that I'm influencing people or people are aspiring to be like me. Anything from just like, what did you study or what was your path or what's your morning routine to where did you get your belt from? Where are your shoes from? And I'm like, don't worry about where I got mine from. Like go into a random store and just get drawn to what you're drawn to. Mm. My favorite color is black. Like you can like pink and that's cool, you know, and maybe that's why I had such an aversion once I left Frank Body 2 because I was like, I just want to be me and that's why I went full like whatever everyone's focused on, I'm going to do the opposite. So I was like, what's the color? No one's even thinking about yellow. I like yellow. Cool. This is it. And now everyone there, we see a lot of more beauty brands doing yellow. And I'm like, this is just fucking lazy. Like go and pick a Pantone book, pick whatever color. Like I'll choose one for you. (laughs) So that's what is, you know, that's what's hard for me. And this idea of thinking about social and our influence and what, what kind of influence we want to have in our images when we post something, like what am I hoping someone will get out of it? Yeah, I think it's something that will continue to evolve as the world changes every day and you can't really settle on one view because the circumstances that you're in change every day as well. But that's kind of what's exciting, that it keeps you on your toes and you you can't get complacent and you always do have to be making sure that your message and your behaviour and your products are all in line with how you feel. And I I actually think that's what gives certain brands longevity over others is because someone behind the scenes is trying to make sure that everything's consistent and actually cares about that. And I think customers want to get to know the people behind brands. And I think that's really important, um, knowing who's there, what they care about, um, but also knowing that it doesn't have to be the same founder um, as everyone else. But it's, I think that the Australian kind of founder industry quite specific and quite clicky and I don't know if that's because of sort of like tall poppy stuff here or we just don't have as much diversity I mean it's like well we we do there's so much culture and diversity but we're just not putting it out or looking for it finding it because Mm. I see the type of founders say for example in America and what they represent and what they're putting out there it's something that I really hope could be in Australia, but I don't see as much. And I'm still yeah. trying to figure out why. Like, is it that we're just so scared of being ourselves or we don't yet know who we are and so we're, we're sort of scared to put something out there that's different? I'm not sure. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, quickly before we move to the next section, going back to the actual products and the front-facing part of Fluff, for anyone who hasn't tried it out or been introduced to the brand, what is your gateway drug to get into Fluff? My favourite thing ever about your refillable products is the casing. It is heavy, ergonomic. What do you call it? The cloud, is it? A cloud. So this is the the lip tint. But um, the foundation, which I have on now, is also comes in this. I think I have like edition one, <laughs> maybe, like the very first shape that ever came out. And I couldn't believe how just like satisfyingly heavy it was when everything else is light and plastic and it's just like you reach in your handbag and you feel it straight away. So, yeah, what are your favourite products? And, um, yeah, if, if you had to recommend a gateway drug into fluff, what would it be? So it definitely would be what we call the foundation set, which is actually, I guess, the foundation to your beauty routine without a foundation product, which is our bronzing powder and our facial number one, which is just jojoba oil. And with the bronzing powder comes with a kabuki brush. So all of our products like refillable is the main thing that we are now moving towards. And just the idea that you don't have to buy as often and buy I guess single use plastic packaging and that you have makeup that you're sort of really proud of so I think the biggest point of difference is that if you're Carmex or 
chemist brand lip balm, whatever was sitting on the dinner table, I'd know exactly what it was, right? There'd be no conversation. When Fluff's lip oil, the little compact is sitting on a table, it makes people feel something. People are like, what is this? You want to touch it. You want to look at it. You want to hold it. And it's based off a grounding stone. So, and this cloud shape because our heads are always in the clouds thinking and feeling. So it's just like a piece of jewelry. And we base those designs off Art Deco compacts and cigarette cases. We make up and these possessions of women were like a, a sign of what they cared about and there was value assigned to it. So that's where I really feel like beauty can be so much more than makeup. It's sort of about how you feel and how you act and what you say and just a reflection mm-hmm. of your identity and expressing yourself. So, yeah, the foundation set is great, but if you're not into bronzing powder, I think my goal is that everyone has a fluff lip oil. I think it's the best product um, in that it's refillable, that it's vegan and cruelty-free and no lanolin or beeswax, which a lot of um, lip balms have. Mm. And, again, while those products aren't bad or those ingredients aren't bad for your skin, for us it's just like it's the most logical step in not using products that have any animal byproducts involved. And I do love that it's such a conversation starter. Like if it's yeah. just sitting on the table, people are like, what is that? And it's reflective and it's, mm. it's, it is like a piece of jewellery or a piece of designer furniture or something and it does carry a lot of, you know, I always say um, people will never remember what you said or what you did. They'll always remember how you made them feel and it does evoke a feeling. It is very grounding. The heaviness is very grounding. It like fits in your hand and I love the call out to our heads being in the clouds yeah. and then that linking with the idea of fluff. It's just, it's really lovely. I love it so much. Yeah. <laughs> so I've kind of merged a bit of NATA, the section about you know, the barriers to your joy into OTA. But one we haven't covered just before we move on is burnout. And the problem for A-type productive ideas people like us is that there's very little incentive not to be doing, doing, doing when you love what you do, more so when you love what you do than otherwise. And especially when you're a reflector and you're self-aware and you're always kind of evaluating everything, there's not a lot of time to just like refill the cup and give yourself time to get creative again and find your motivation. So I've read that you are one of those people who I really admire who don't ascribe to the idea of balance. There's no like work-life balance. It's, it is a spectrum that just kind of flows from day to day. But how do you manage your energy between the non-paid part of being a founder and doing interviews and being, you know, everyone wanting a piece of you, then actually running the business and then not burning out with all the other things that you're doing? I think that I just have really accepted, yeah, that I am not seeking this sort of balance between work and life and that I gain joy from both and I can get bored or frustrated with both too. And so just, I guess, acknowledging it with myself first and then being able to communicate it with all the people around me and when I'm feeling burnt out or tired to take that time to stop. But then I, I said this morning to show you who I work with, there's some days where I know and I actually am drawn to the idea of just sitting at the computer and writing until something comes out. And I think that process and repetitions actually works for me. So I just really try not to be attached to an outcome or this sort of end goal. I'm like, hey, I'm either feeling this today or I'm not, or I need to really work hard or I need to go and have fun. Um, Mm. Even though (laughs) I thought about it and I was like, I would never describe myself as fun. And I know you ask people what they do for fun. And I was like, fun, that's an interesting word. (laughs) No so that's yeah that's the next question the last section is play ta which is where you unravel all the aspects of your identity that are productive achieving output focused and even i kind of even turn rest into an output focused activity where i'm like am i being the best at resting am i resting to 100 percent of my abilities to rest but play is where you do the things that make you forget what time it is or what those metrics are all together. And I would a hundred thousand percent describe you as fun. That is so interesting that you wouldn't personally choose that word for yourself. No. So do you have a concept of what makes you maybe not is fun, but that makes you feel that flow state where you detach from the time or the day or that you just enjoy so much that you would do it for the pleasure regardless of whether it was productive? Because uh, I do things like, I mean, I love writing and I guess because it's blurred now between work and passion, that's why it's sort of hard for me to say I do it for fun, but I try and just write for the sake of writing 
and that can be fun sometimes and that can be really painful sometimes or it can just be really interesting. I love spending time on my own and walking and hiking even though I don't do it enough. So I guess that's something I do for fun. That's Um, a great one. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) Um, And then I do love having people over like bringing my favourite people together for like a dinner party and not having, you know, phone down, just learning about each other and talking about shit that matters. I think that's when I sort of will lose track of time Mm. and nothing sort of planned. It's just a spontaneous evening where everyone's having a lot of fun. Do you consume content as much as you create it? And what's your favourite? Do you watch do you actually watch TV or are you one of those people who's like? I own a TV and I'm passionate about my dislike of television. Wait, you um, don't own a television? No. You're so enlightened. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that because I spend a lot of time on my computer or on my phone with social, I think it must be me just not wanting to another screen around. But it's hard because I know that there's some really amazing content out there in terms of movies and documentaries and, like, when people do convince me to watch a movie, like, I will cry and I will get fully involved. And maybe that's my aversion because I know I would get addicted to that kind of stuff. But, yeah, I find that more I like reading stuff like books and learning about other people's lives or just writing and seeing what comes out because I'm obsessed also with children's books and so I really And you wrote one. Yeah. I can't believe I forgot to ask you about it. Tell us about the children's book. (laughs) Well, I guess it's something maybe, yeah, that people don't know and it was never intended again that I was like, I'm going to be a children's author or that's what I want to do. It was a love project with my best friend at the time and we self-published it and then we were so proud of it that we decided to send it to a few publishers and it got picked up and it's just a story of two little kids and their friendship and them discussing the qualities of a friendship that you look for in a relationship and trying to decide whether they're founded in each other or wanted in someone else. I'm always amazed or I think I love children's books so much because of how simply they can put specific ideas out around very serious or important issues. Like I'm obsessed with Winnie the Pooh, like classic Winnie the Pooh. It's my favourite. And if ever I go into a secondhand store, I always look for classic Winnie the Pooh books and that story is really incredible about what it meant in a time and yeah I think we sort of lost a little bit of that connection through writing Mm. so yeah I think that's where I go into like another world I love that (laughs) everyone else is like I binge on reality tv and Erica's like I produce children's books that have a beautiful meaning on friendship (laughs) 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 but you know what else that reminds me because for me personally I am so such an overthinker and analyzer that I need really trashy television. I hate reality TV, but like totally unrealistic crime shows. And I have to binge that stuff because I found that that's my outlet to just let my intellect go completely and my sense of reality. I tend to think, oh, that's a really intellectually stimulating way to rest. But It's so good to hear and to give other people permission because I often say, oh, that's way too smart to be restful because it's productive. For some people, that is restful. Mm. It is restful to read things that teach you something. The point of play is not that you can't actually be learning at all. It's just that you're not doing it to learn. Yeah. If it's a byproduct, that's amazing. (laughs) That's a good point. And um, the second last question, you actually already have answered one of them, which is what are the three things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? So other than the children's book, what are two other interesting random facts about Erica? Oh, uh, yeah, I was going to say that I don't have a TV. Oh, but maybe also that there's typically nothing in my fridge or freezer. So other than an aversion to a TV, I have an aversion to freezing food. I don't know what it is. Maybe I just have memories of my mum <laughs> spaghetti bolognese for weeks straight. <gasps> I can't stand things being in my fridge for more than three days. It's a very privileged thing to say, but I just, yeah, it just weirds me out. No, um, it's also like the old way. People didn't always refrigerate. Like it, food is not necessarily meant to last for more than three to five days, you that's know. What kind of freaks me out. Someone offered me a piece of Christmas cake the other day and I was like, don't, <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> Mm-mm. Um, what else don't people know I have this weird thing that my staff member pointed out with threes like it's not a diagnosed OCD but I have a thing where I like things in threes and I touch things three times 
Wow. I have that with um, like if I have a bite of something of someone's, like mainly of Nick, he has to leave enough so I can have a second one. Like I have to have two. I can't have one and I can't have three. And the volume has to be on like a two, four, six, eight, or a zero. Or a five, though. Five is okay for some weird reason because it's like in the middle. Yeah. So, yeah, I've got there my little weird things. As a twin, do you have any weird things? Do you and Rowie ever like ESP have moments where you know that something's happened to each other? Well, because we're fraternal twins, we're not very cool twins, I would say. (laughs) Um, And I'd like to think that some days... I'll be feeling shit and then I'll call her and she's like, I'm feeling shit too. And I'm like, cool. We're I feel better. <laughs> but no, I mean, we we both, I think, have the same feelings around a lot of stuff and tend to deny that or ignore that because we want to be seen as very different and independent of each other. But yeah, she, yeah, that's something that a lot of people don't know because I often don't talk about her, not because I don't want to, it just doesn't come up in conversation. But She's amazing and a big part of my life and is probably what brings about the most adventure or fun in my life. Like she's always convincing me to meet her somewhere around the world and go on a hike and and go out of my sort of city bubble, which is my tendency. She's an amazing yoga teacher, guys, if anyone is listening. If you get a chance to do one of Roe's classes when Melbourne finally kind of sorts its life out and we can go back to doing classes. Well, if she comes back, she's currently in Japan. She is always somewhere else, isn't she? I know. But I've now- seen her in Melbourne twice maybe ever. Yeah, but now she's learning to sit with herself. <laughs> oh, amazing. I would have thought she'd be really good at that already from yoga. Mm, this is the, the yogi dilemma. It is. <laughs> is it? What are you trying to do? Take me down. <laughs> <laughs> and very last question, since I love quotes so much, what's your favourite quote? Oh, my gosh, now you really put me on the spot. Um, <laughs> I have one that you've quoted before that I loved to give you a little head start. Huh? It's from E.B. White. I can't remember where I found it. He said, I arise in the morning torn between the desire to improve the world and a desire to enjoy the world. And it just like struck a particular chord in me because I have that exact same thing. My yay is to improve the world and leave it better in some way or to improve one person's day, which then contributes to the overall world's you know, net happiness level. But then I also have this like slothful, leisurely desire to seize my yay by just like enjoying the small things and not contributing in any way at the same time. So That is the struggle. And some days it's all too much for me and I complain. I'm like, I can't be bothered. I don't want to deal with this. But I think I'm really trying to enjoy the world by improving it. And I believe that they can be both maintained. I think the quote that probably comes up like second for me is this one by Viktor Frankl who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, which is an incredible book that I recommend everyone reads. And he says, between stimulus and response, there is a space and in that space is our power to choose and that choice is our greatest freedom. I paraphrase a little bit, but I really believe that we often react without ever pausing and stopping and thinking. And when we give ourselves sort of time to choose how we respond, like that's the the greatest freedom we have and what I put a lot of energy and time into. I love that one. It reminds me of sort of the flip side of that, which is um, about how the greatest lack of power that people often have is thinking they don't have any or something like that. Forgetting that you actually have agency and I think people think a lot of life happens to you, but there's so much conscious choice in the way that your life goes when you realize that you have it and then exercise it, which is easier said than done, of course. But you've been a wonderful, wonderful role model for me in doing that and continue to be. And um, I always enjoy our chats when we either end up in our lawyers' meeting rooms together or like (laughs) (laughs) similar things. And then we have a really quick chat about business and how it's going. We need to catch up, but. Yeah, it's always nice knowing that there are people around going through similar stuff. And I think one of the nicest things I've found about having been out of law and in business long enough to now reflect on the whole journey is that I've now been around long enough to look back and see people like yourself and other people on the journey who we've all been through lots of different chapters together and been there in each other's chapters and to be able to look back and go remember when I was going through that phase and it's actually really lovely and hopefully there's more chapters like 
I am very fearful that my book would be over. Do you know what I mean? Like if this is it, I'm like, hopefully it will be a lot more for both of us. Mm. And that's, I think, why I love to talk to you about the the idea that for a lot of people, Frank would have been the book is over. You wouldn't necessarily mm. need, like a lot of people would be satisfied that that was like up here success, I'm done, like I'm out. Like why would I need to achieve anything else? And I love that you were like, that's the start of my book. Like <laughs> this is the beginning and I think we do fall into that trap and I found the same thing with Matcha that I was like, I'm, I've am i left law, like I've done the biggest move out of the comfort zone, I don't have to do it ever again. Yeah. And then I got to the five-year mark and was like, I hate this so much. <laughs> I hate being in a high-vis vest and that's how Seize the Yay came about was like everything in iterations, right? Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining, my love. And um, I'm so, so excited for everyone to have their gateway drug into fluff and then (laughs) get hooked like I am and have their little cloud in their handbags at all times. Me too. Yet another guest I am so lucky to have made friends with and whose touch points in my life very visibly influence the pathway that I've taken. She's a thinker and a doer who I love being around and I hope you found Eri as interesting as I do. Please do check out her incredible work at Fluff and if you enjoyed the chat, let her know by tagging at Erica, G-E-R-A-E-R-T-S and myself so we can reshare. You might have also seen that Chits and Giggles live sessions are back this week after a little break, but this time around, I thought we'd go a bit more hands-on, so some of you might find a new play TA. Us Victorians need all the ISO-friendly fun we can get at the moment, so we're kicking off with a salsa class on Wednesday 12th of August at 6pm Melbourne time, with this year's Dancing with the Stars winner, Jared Byrne, who also choreographed our wedding dance. You can follow along in your PJs or just laugh at me attempting to do the same and I'll upload to IGTV straight after so you can save it for later if you miss the live. Next week we'll follow with a former podcast guest cooking class. Any guesses who? (laughs) You get the idea of what's to come. So much fun lies ahead. I hope you're all seizing your yay.